0: As we've looked at the Servant Songs of Isaiah, we're now exploring the 50th chapter which contains the third song entitled, The Song of the Steadfast Servant. These Servant Songs are simply songs that God inspired Isaiah to write and to set within his prophecy which point us toward the true suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. In this Song of the Steadfast Servant we have seen that he knew what it would take to save his people from their sins and yet he was willing to go anyway. He set his face like a flint toward Calvary. Join us today as we continue looking at the song of the steadfast servant, our wondrous Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who saved us from our sins. But first, we have a song selection that I hope you enjoy. After the song, please stay tuned for another message of God's sovereign grace from the Zion Primitive Baptist Church pulpit. Men of sorrows, what a
1: name for you.
0: amazing to have a God that knew exactly how to save us, but wouldn't it be awful to have a God that didn't know how many to save? He knew exactly how many to save. You know why He knew that? Because John 17 tells us in verse 2, As many as thou hast given me. That's how many He was going to save. In John 6:37, All that the Father giveth me shall come unto me. 2 Timothy 2.19 is one of my favorites. He says, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His. Isn't that glorious? He knew, you see. He had the necessary knowledge to save us eternally. Why did He know? Because He was God. He is God, I should say, because He's still God. Jesus Christ had the necessary knowledge to save us eternally. But let me give you some good news here and now. Jesus Christ also has the necessary knowledge to save us in time. To save us here and now. To deliver us in anything that we're involved in. Notice what he said back over in Isaiah 50. He says, the Lord has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. Do you get weary? I get weary. I'm weary this morning. I'm weary. I've, I've been doing a lot of traveling. You know that lately. I'm weary. I'm tired of traveling. I'm tired of the grind. I'm tired of the struggle with sin. I'm tired of being gone and being away. I'm tired of having wonderful mountaintop experiences like we've had here at this church and then going right back down in the valley. I'm so tired of that. (laughs) I'm so tired of it. I'm tired of suffering loss and grief. I'm tired of hearing bad news. I'm tired of hearing bad news. I'm weary of that. But you know what? My Lord knows how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. You ever, you ever been at a loss for words? I have. You say, you're a preacher. You shouldn't be at a loss for words. I'm at a loss for words all the time. I go to the bedside of somebody that's lost a loved one tragically, and they're struggling with their faith. I don't know what to say. Little platitudes don't work. Just hang in there. It'll get better with time. I mean, that doesn't work. Yesterday morning, a lady, she said, McCool, I've heard your name. Are you the one that's running for Supreme Court? I said, yes, ma'am, I am. She said, I want to know where you stand on the women's right to choose. I knew where she was coming from, and I had my Bible in my hand. I said, Well, ma'am, I'm pro life. I believe strongly that life begins at conception and that's what and we got into engaged in a conversation. It wasn't a real you know, too big of an argument, but she obviously didn't agree with me. And she told me this, she said, Sir, I was raped in college. And if I'd gotten pregnant, I would have killed myself. You know, what do you say to that? How could I? I know people. And I know people like that. I know people that have taken their lives over things like that. That's a struggle. What do you say? What do you say? I don't have all the answers. But you know what I told her? I said, ma'am, I can't identify with you. I can't give you the answers. But I had this in my hand. I said, I can point you to one that knows all the answers. And I know one who can identify with everything you're telling me right now and i just encourage you to go look we parted not agreeing but we didn't depart in anger but i was thinking to myself on the way on the way out i don't know if she was a child of god or not i suspect she was she was you know seemed to have a a kind sweet spirit even though we were disagreeing and she was very wrong and um, i was thinking lord i just wish i knew what to say every time but you know what I don't have to know what to say every time because the Lord knows what to say every single time. He, What I told her was exactly right. I can't give you that empathy that you deserve and that you need. I can't identify with you, but there is one who can identify with you because he's touched in every respect with a feeling of our infirmities. There's not a tragic situation. There's not a trauma you can experience. There's not a a violent act that can be performed upon you that hadn't been greatly more performed upon Him. He understands and He gets it. He, He can speak a word in season to him that is weary. Praise God. I'm so thankful for my eternal redemption, but I am also equally thankful for the fact that in time He can deliver me. From the struggles and trials of life. Oh, I need that. Listen, call me if I can help you. I'll try to speak a word in season to you. But I can't always do it. But I can point you to one that always can. And he has through his word here. And sometimes he just wraps us up in his arms. And we can feel his presence. You see, he has the ability. He has the necessary knowledge to save us in time. That's what, that's what Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 is talking about. It's not talking about coming to him to get saved eternally. He says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. You labor? You're heavy laden? You burden? You weary? Come unto me, he says. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's not talking about eternity. He's talking about Time. Rest here and now. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Beloved, this is the one that knows how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the urgency of the gospel, by the way. The urgency of the gospel is not to go out and try to get people saved for eternal heaven because that's something God does. But the urgency of the preaching of the gospel is to help get people saved that is delivered from their troubles here and now and from the struggles of life. That's what the gospel does to me. The gospel saves me over and over and over again. Every day that I live, the gospel message saves me when I think of it. Because I get lost out in the world. Not eternally. I'm not talking about that. You know that. I'm, praise God. Once you're born of the Spirit, you're always born of the Spirit. <laughs> you know? But, but in this life, I suffer. I struggle. I struggle with others. I struggle with situations. I struggle with myself. I need to be delivered. I need to be saved from my troubles from this crooked generation. And he says morning by morning he does that. That means every single day he is able to deliver you with that word in season. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that sweet? The knowledge of Christ. Now, beginning in verse 5, we begin to see why Christ's knowledge about the situation that his people is in is ultimately going to deliver us because we, see, we begin to see the steadfastness of Christ. Notice in verse 5. Notice he says, The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. Notice what he's saying here. I knew what it would take to deliver you. And when... And because I know that, I know what to do. But see, he could know what to do and not be willing to do it. But praise God, he was willing to do it. He says he went with absolute certainty. He knew exactly what he would be facing. God opened his ear. He said, he opened mine ear. God told him exactly what he would have to do. As God, he knew exactly what he would have to do. But he says he turned not his back. Look back over to Psalm chapter 2. I love this verse. It's, we know it's talking about the Messiah, about Christ, because Acts 13 and verse 33 tells us it is. In Psalm chapter 2, we'll skip down for the lack of time, down to verse 6. He says, or verse 7, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. You can go over to Acts thirteen thirty-three, and it's quoted right there. We know this is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou art my son, this, and that doesn't mean that, he, that the Lord Jesus Christ came into being. He's always been. He's always been the son. But he says, this, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. You know, the beauty of that is, is he's talking there about the eternal redemption that is going to be found only in Christ. He says, he didn't say ask them if they want to be saved. He said, you ask of me, my son, the heathen for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth, even the places where the gospel will never reach, where the word of God will never be heard. You ask of me, the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession, and I will give them to you. And I will give them to you. And that's what he did in the covenant of grace before the foundation of the world. And the beauty of this is, is that he did ask and God did give. Isn't that glorious? You know, I'd have been hesitant. I'd have been, oh, wait a minute now. I mean, I might, there's one or two over there that are doing a pretty good job. But then there's that old Chris McCool, that old Buddy Abernathy. That old James Junkin, that old Mackie Deeson, all the, those people that... I'm not casting aspersions on you, brethren, but, but uh, I, you know yourselves better than I do, and I just know you're sinners. <laughs> I know how bad a sinner I am, but I suspect there's not a lot of difference between us. I don't know about them now, but you know what he did? He asked. He asked his father, "'Yes, I will go. "'I will die for them.'" He went with absolute certainty and even though he knew exactly what would be required, he went anyway. He says, I was not rebellious, neither turned away my back. Not one time did he, did he fall away or stumble on the road to Calvary. There's, you know, there's a difference between not knowing and going and knowing and yet still going. Read about the Garden of Gethsemane when you can, when you get a chance. He was beginning to feel the weight of that sin that would encompass him and the wrath of God that would be poured out upon him. And he was in agony. He was in. We're told he was sore amazed, and that means to literally be struck with terror. We're told that he was very heavy. That's over in Mark 14 sometimes if you want to read it. And that means to be in distress of mind. He was full of heaviness. He was exceeding sorrowful, encompassed with grief. Exceedingly sorrowful. He went with absolute certainty of what he would be facing. And notice verse 6. He went with shame-filled, not shameful. I started to say that, but it gives the wrong connotation with shame-filled distress. Look at verse 6. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. That is such a shameful thing that happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. They stripped him. Did you know that? They stripped him of the clothes that he wore and put him on display for the whole world. I don't know why... Everything got dark. I don't know exactly why God turned out the lights, so to speak, but I suspect part of it was he wasn't going to allow his son to become a spectacle. He was going to turn off the lights. He gave his back to the smiters and his cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. You know, I've told you this before, but one of the awfulest things that my wife has ever inflicted upon me is to try to pluck my eyebrows. (laughs) I hate that with a passion, Brother Glennon. Yeah, yeah, amen. It's it's and I mean just those little, you know, one or two, you know, she said, "No, oh, you got some gray hair. I'm proud of my gray hair. I'm going to keep it." <laughs> and I've had a beard a time or two in my life. And in the times that I had it and I'd read this verse, I just I just try to pull on it a little bit. And and I couldn't pull on it very much, brother Mackey. It just it hurt too bad. And yet And yet, they plucked out the beard of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that. Think about how hurtful and painful that would be. And think about what it leaves. Bloody, a rash, painful. Think about that. It says, I hid not my face from shame and spitting. I can't think of anything worse any more disrespectful, insulting thing to happen to somebody than to be spit upon. You wanna really, you wanna really start a fight, walk up to me and spit on me. That's the first response that I've got is I'm, you know, that's that's my human nature. But Jesus Christ submitted himself to being spit upon, to being scourged. Remember. What we're told in Psalm 129 and verse 3, The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. That that old cat old nine tails we call it today. It wasn't called that then, but it's a a whip. It wasn't just a one-strand whip. It had multiple strands with little pieces of bone and metal embedded in it, and it would just rip the skin off the back as they applied it. He went with shame-filled distress. But notice in verse 7, which is sort of the central theme, I believe, of this song, He went with steadfast resolve. For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He went, as it were, with his face set like a flint. And let me just stop here can you think can you imagine the angels standing by watching this scene i don't know what they knew they don't know everything they're not god they don't have all knowledge but can you imagine you know he told his he told his disciples in the garden when they came to get him in matthew 26 53 he said thinkest thou not or thinkest thou that i cannot now Pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. More than 12 legions of angels were standing by. They were watching this. They were ready. A Roman legion was about six, well, 6,000 soldiers is made up a Roman legion. So think about this. 12 legions would have been 72,000 soldiers or 72,000 angels. Over in 2 Kings chapter 19 and verse 35, we're told that one angel... One angel slew 185,000 Assyrians in one night. So you take 72,000 angels and multiply that by 185,000, if that is the limit, which I doubt it is, but just say it is, 72,000 angels times 185,000 dead people, people that were slain, adds up to 13 billion 320 million people that 72,000 angels could slay based upon second kings 19 and verse 35 and remember he didn't say just 12 legions he said more than 12 legions I did a little research and in AD 1 the population of the whole world it was estimated to be between 200 and 300 million people the population of the roman empire was around 45 million I want you to think about this. Had Jesus called those more than 12 legions of angels, those angels could have wiped out the entire population of the earth. Just like that. That one angel in one night killed 185,000. But he didn't do that. He didn't do that. He had the ability to get out of this. But he didn't do it. Instead, he set his face like a flint toward Calvary. Sometime turn back over. We won't turn for lack of time this morning. Over back to Luke chapter 9, I believe it's verse 51. It says, It came to pass that when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, he'd been to Jerusalem many times, but the Holy Spirit prompted Luke to point out that on this occasion, as the time was approaching, that he was to go to Calvary, he didn't just wander his way into Jerusalem. He didn't just mosey on up to Jerusalem. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face like a flint. And that just simply means, that's a Hebrew idiom that just means, that's the way they said, he set his face like a flint. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? Why did the God of glory do that? But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Hebrews chapter, I mean Ephesians chapter 2. That's why he loved us. He loved you, child of God. And because he loved you, he set his face like a flint to go to Calvary. We're told in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 that we're to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now listen to this, who for the joy that was set before, what's the joy that was set before him? It was the joy that one day he would march into heaven itself with his people at his side and behind him saying, Behold, I and the children thou hast given me. Yes, He's there now, but He's coming back to get us. And one day, our resurrected bodies are going to be marching into heaven with our captain, our elder brother at the head. That song, Oh, Tell Me No More, has a verse in it that says, And when I'm to die, receive me, I'll cry, for Jesus hath loved me. I cannot tell why, but this I do find. We too are so joined, He'll not live in glory and leave me behind. There is a sense in which the Lord Jesus Christ is still not satisfied. Now don't get me wrong, His work satisfied the justice of God. God was satisfied with what He did. He was satisfied with finishing the work. But He is not going to be satisfied completely until all of His children are at home. Think about this you got 10 children and you have a family gathering and you're getting ready to 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 get together and, <laughs> and you know they're traveling from somewhere else well we've heard of these tragedies happening one of them gets killed in a car wreck on the way another one gets arrested and put in jail on the way another one just decides they're not coming and then seven of them show up and You sit down at the table, you say, well, you know, i got seven out of ten. I'm satisfied. (laughs) You're going to be satisfied with that? The Lord's not either, child of God. He's not satisfied. He will not be satisfied until we all are home with Him. And look at the steadfastness of the Father. Verse 8, He that is near that justifieth me. This is the suffering servant speaking now. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to ask me. Notice the complete unity of the Godhead here. See, this is why this works, because the Godhead is completely unified. The Lord God will help me, he said back in verse 7. And therefore he will not be confounded. He said, He is near that justifieth me. God is with me. God will not leave me. God will not. You know, that's the prayer in, in Gethsemane was all about that. He said, let not this cup pass. What cup? The cup of God's wrath. For us, the wrath of God would require an eternity in hell. For Christ, the wrath of God simply required him to die on the cross, having become sin for us. He was praying, let the cup pass. I know I've got to drink it, but let me drink it and let it pass and let us be back together. He said, behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they all shall wax old as a garment. The moth shall eat them up. There's nothing that can interfere with this work of the suffering steadfast servant. And now notice as we close, and I know where time has gone, look at verse 10. Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. We've been talking about the steadfastness of the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, but did you know you can be steadfast too? Not to the extent he was. But do you know how you can be steadfast? He says, who is among you that feareth the Lord? In other words, are you one that's been born of the Spirit? Do you see what a sinner you are? Do you see what, are you, do you have a desire to serve and obey Him? He said, then, then trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon your God. You want to be steadfast in your life? Trust the Lord. Lean not to your own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him. He will direct thy paths. Now you can be like verse 11. Behold all you that kindle a fire and compass yourselves about with sparks. You can try to build up your own fire. You can try to walk by the light of the sparks of that fire. But the result of that is you will lie down in, in sorrow. You will not have the light that you need. But oh, what a contentment we will find when we recognize that the Lord himself, the suffering servant of Isaiah, steadfastly set his face like a flint toward Calvary and finished the work of our eternal salvation. You want to be steadfast in this life? You can't do it in anything you've stirred up in yourself. But you can be steadfast when you stay or trust or lean upon the Lord in his finished work.